Today we're in the book of Luke, and Tim uh, kicked off our series last week entitled Three Wise Women. And today we're going to be talking about Mary and who she is and what we need to know about her. And I, I know sometimes when we think of Christmas, I mean, Christmas brings a flood of memories. I don't know what it's like for you. But for me, I think back to all of the sights and sounds that I experienced when I was a child. And some, for, for others, they have their traditions and uh, memories that come back to them even in terms of movies, like Miracle on 34th Street, or It's a Wonderful Life, or uh, White Christmas, or maybe um, more of a, you know, the Christmas story. You know, some of you have those memories in films that you or movies that you relate to, or some others of a younger generation, it might be Elf, uh, whatever it might be. And it, it's funny because those m movies capture a little bit about us and some of the things that we see every year. And I, I think to the traditions and the smells, I mean, getting together with family, and we, we all have our traditions. I mean, I'm sure you do. And when you walk in the house and you see the, the Christmas sweaters and the Christmas, you know, jewelry and necklaces and the, the ant that has the dangling Christmas, Christmas light earrings that blink. Um, you, you know what I'm talking about. We all have these, these memories, and, and they bring back memories of when we were children, things that we uh, remember with fondness, hopefully. I know many of, some of us in the room may not have those fond memories, but I think many of us do. Um, and each year that comes back, and, and in some ways, it's not the expectation that what we had when we were children. That same sense of expectation is not there as much. Um, and I, I think we need to stop and pause and rediscover Christmas. Because we are operating at breakneck speed during the Christmas season. We are going so fast trying to get ready or go to a holiday party or bake cookies or whatever we might or what we do during the Christmas season. And it's imperative for us to stop and pause and reflect and recall that baby in a manger. Because that it's becoming more and more controversial to have either a nativity set or even to say Merry Christmas. It's amazing to me that in my lifetime, or even my grandfather's lifetime, uh, who's still alive, he's in his 90s, that in this day and age, two men can get married or you can smoke pot any, in certain states and be a perfectly fine, but to say Merry Christmas, you get in trouble. What a weird world <laughs> it's become, is it not? I mean, it's strange to think that Christmas can be so controversial, but yet there is no Christmas without Christ. To rediscover that baby in a manger, to understand how controversial he really is. And undoubtedly, when we think of the babe in the manger, we can't but help think of his mother and Mary and her role, and as well as Joseph's. I mean, this is a young couple, and I can't imagine the stress that they felt. I mean, we, we forget that Jesus came into time, to social situations, to real people and their lives. I mean, they didn't walk around as so often the picture with big, giant, glowing halos as if they were just exposed to radiation. These were real people in real situations. I mean, I can't imagine being Joseph to be engaged, 
to look forward to that day of the wedding. And Mary says, Joseph, I need to talk with you. We need to have a conversation. Um, by the way, I'm pregnant, and God is the father. And he'd be like, yeah, um, have you been kicked in the head recently? Or you know, what's wrong with you? I mean, God is the father of your child, right? That's why he said he, it had in mind, the scripture tells us, to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to put her to shame. But then an angel appears to him in a dream and tells him, no, that she's right. And, and so Joseph does marry her, and we see him, we, and we don't see a lot of him past Jesus' 12th birthday. We don't hear anything about him, assuming that he must have died. And even then, he plays a small role in the Christmas story. The focus is on Jesus, but it's also a lot on Mary. Now, how do we view Mary? How do we view her? What do we think about her? You know, it's interesting, if you come from a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox background, she has an exalted position, extremely high. Matter of fact, in some Catholic circles, she is given the title of co-redemptrix, meaning that she is, she can save people along the lines of Jesus. Now, that's, I believe, too high. And, and we, though, as Protestants, we have a tendency to look at her too low. We, we just kind of relegate her to the, the, the heap of church history and just throw her on there, and we don't say much about her. But the Scripture is pretty clear in the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 42 through 43, and I'm going to show you this verse here. The Scripture says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, this is Elizabeth, that we heard about last week, that the mother of my Lord should come to me. She is blessed among women. Matter of fact, Mary says of herself in Luke 1, 46 through 49, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. See, we can't exalt her to the position of co-redemptrix. That's not what the scripture says. But yet we can't regulate her to the ash heap of church history either. There has to be some metal ground because she is to be blessed. The most blessed among generations will call her blessed. We need to understand what does that mean? And not only does what does it mean, but why is it important? And why does it apply to us in the here and now? What can we learn from her? I mean, there's something about her that we need to see and rediscover, and we need to, in some ways, rescue her from those who have hijacked her and put her at such an esteemable position, but yet we also must rescue her from those who just roll over her and say that she means nothing, because she does have a very important role in the birth of Jesus Christ. So today, what I hope that we can do is rediscover her, Rediscover her, and as well as in rediscovering her, I hope we can see her as um, a reflector. She reflects Jesus to us, and that we can learn from her example and try to emulate the faith that she had in the midst of misunderstanding and hostility. 
So before we get any further into that, let's pause for a moment asking God's blessing on our time together today. Father, we come before you asking to understand, begging to hear your voice, to experience your touch. Lord, we long to hear of your spirit, to know that you are near, that you are still working in your people, that you are still at work in saving souls. Lord, I pray today that as we look at this woman who is, for generations, we'll call her blessed, help us to understand her role. Help us to understand and see why it is important. And help us to see how we can learn from her and possibly emulate her faith. We ask you to bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we view Mary? I've been studying recently, for those that don't know about me, I'm kind of a bibliophile. Uh, I go through the scripture about twice a year. Um, and I like to read different kinds of Bibles, different kinds of study Bibles, and even Bibles that come from different traditions like Roman Catholic and Orthodox to understand more about them. Um, having not grown up from that tradition, I am very ignorant, so I want to learn. And this past year, I read through the Orthodox study Bibles. And in reading through that, at first I was very just interested to know about them, but the more that I started to read, I couldn't believe how far the Orthodox, as well as many of the Roman Catholics, would go so far to put Mary to an exalted position beyond that which the Scripture says. Now, I think she is a very important woman, but I don't see her as the level that many put her at, that they will do hermeneutical flip-flops in order to show that she is a forever virgin, that she never had any other children. They will go so far and show her through the Old Testament to show that she never even sinned, that she herself was immaculately conceived. I don't know if you knew that or not. It refers many times to the immaculate conception. It's not referring to Jesus, but to Mary. Now, I'm not here to just go off on that because I think that many people were trying to esteem her and exalt her, and they were using, in essence, faulty human logic in order to do so. But we have to rescue her from the annals of church history and from faulty logic and say, what does the Bible say about her? And why is that important to our lives? What does the Word of God say? Because it's the Word of God, through the Word of God, that we learn about the person or the Son of God as well as those that play different roles within redemption. So it is imperative for us not to look at those with whom we love that might differ and might be a part of those faith, but to say, what does the Word of God say? And unapologetically stand for what the Bible says and the Bible says alone, knowing that when the Bible says it, we can find rest and security in it. So what can we see of Mary? And what can we learn from her? How can we, in essence, rescue her from your rep her reputation? And what, what I mean by that is this, and I, it perhaps illustrated by a story. There was a great Polish pianist named Ignacy Paderewski. He lived from uh, 1860 to 1941. And he had an enormous reputation for being this great pianist. However, he wasn't so highly esteemed by his fellow pianists as he was by the adoring public. His reputation grew to such enormous proportions that another Polish pianist, Moritz Rosenthal, went to hear Paderewski play in London 
and after the concert is purportedly to have said, he plays well, I suppose, but he's no Paderewski. His point was, is that this guy is so amazing, he's not as good as his reputation makes him out to be. His reputation got bigger than he himself really is. And I think the same is true with Mary. Mary has got this huge reputation, is exalted in paintings. We see her throughout church history. We read about her. But yet, is that her? Her reputation has grown to such enormous proportions that if we look at her in her humanity, then people say she's not, that's, that's too low for her. And the idea, even of those come from an Orthodox and Catholic minds, that for her to even engage in conjugal relationships with her husband is beyond their mind. So they say, no, no, no. After she had Jesus, she was done. Closed off. Never to have any more children, ever. They, and they use so many different examples. They look in the Old Testament and they say, like, she is like the eastern wall of Jerusalem that went through it once and now it's sealed forever. And they say that. I, reading through their, their scriptures, I, I've read this personally. I'm not making this up. And they say that her womb was like the angel that Jacob, uh, the, the angels that were de, uh, um, ascending and descending on Jacob's ladder. This is what they, they say. Because she unites heaven and earth. They say that she is like the Ark of the Covenant, that she contains the blessedness within her. They go through all of these different things, but that's not what the Scripture says. What does the Scripture say about her? We need to rediscover her and see who she is. So what can we see about her? Well, here's the first point, and here's what we, the first thing that we can see is that she was one amazing woman. She was an amazing lady. She was an amazing woman. She was greater than Joan of Arc. And, and Sacagawea, Amy Carmichael, Florence Nightingale, Jane Adams, Mary McLeod Bethune, Amelia Earhart, Rosa Parks, Mother Teresa. She's greater than all of these women that have, that have done so much through time and history. She is the most blessed woman. And I can't imagine what she had to deal with. I mean, think about it. She is pregnant, and she's living in this... this uh, small town, which we're going to talk about in a moment, and to have uh, premarital sex is wrong. But in that culture, it's even more wrong. You want to talk about stigma. It's worse than the scarlet letter that Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about in Puritan New England of Hester Prynne. I mean, Hester Prynne had, had committed adultery and had a child out of wedlock. I mean, she had done it, but Mary had done no such thing, and yet she's pregnant. And she has to deal with the sneers, the jeers, the snide remarks, the dirty glances, the continuous gossip of what others were saying about her. I can't imagine that. I mean, it's one thing to suffer for what one has done. And we, we've all been there where we've, we've done something, we got caught doing it. You take your lumps. You deal with the consequences of it. It's another thing to have something said about you that you didn't do and have to suffer the consequence of that. I mean, it's, it's easy to suffer the consequences for something we have done, but it's very hard to suffer the consequences for something we have not done. And that's what Mary was dealing with. She's dealing with the gossip. 
She's dealing with a misunderstanding. She's dealing with a possibility that her fiancé is not going to understand and divorce her quietly. I mean, how does she explain it to her parents? What does she say to her father or her mother or her grandparents? What does she say to her friends? I mean, she had to have an amazing faith to be able to, to withstand that type of difficulty. She, she came from a very small town. She was not only a, an amazing woman, but she was simple. She was a simple woman. She was a simple woman. We see that she came from, in, the, in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a, to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, betrothal, we'll not, we're not very familiar with it, but it's greater in, than engagement, but it's less than marriage. It's still considered to be legally binding, so binding that it was necessary to obtain a divorce to remove oneself from it. But she's from the region of Galilee, which is a country, a country region. She's from the, the town of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth... Um, it, where it's located, see, the Sea of Galilee lies 15 miles to the east of Nazareth, and the Mediterranean Sea lies 20 miles to the west. So it's a little almost middle of the way between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. And it's farm country. It's complete farm country, located on about 60 acres of land, according to archaeologists. Scholars believe that the population could have been no more than 480 people. Now, how many of you are here from a, a town smaller than 2,000 people? Any of you here from a t town smaller than 2,000 people? 3,000. Let's go for 5,000. How many of you are from a town of 5,000 smaller? Okay, you're from a town that small. Now, in my hometown, I grew up in a town of about 2,000 people, and it used to have this, this, this sign that appeared that says, you're a stranger only once. And in some ways, it was true, because when you came into town, everybody knew who you were real quick. And not only that, if you messed up in a small town, who do you think knew about it? Everybody. Grandmas. I, okay, when I, was, when I was 15 years old, I'm going to tell this, my kids aren't listening. Um, I got into a car accident before I was 16. Yeah, it was bad, okay? And when you get into a car accident, and what happens in a small town? The police come, and who else shows up? The whole town. <laughs> the whole town drives by. Just to see. It's their only entertainment. <laughs> it really is. If you're from a small town, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The whole town drives by and talks about it. And you're standing there with a the police officer. <laughs> and you've got nowhere to go. I mean, everybody knows who you are. Now, with Mary, everybody knew who she was. Everyone would know this. When she started showing, I mean, it's good. the gossip mill is going to fly. And it's a simple town. I mean, she's a simple woman. She comes from farm country, and she was probably between 12 and 14 years old. It was custom, customary to marry at 12 and 13. Matter of fact, later on, rabbis put for the minimum age for, or, um, minimum age for girls to be 12 and boys was 13 to get married. So that was customary to be married very young in that culture. So she is young. She's simple. She doesn't have, she hasn't gone to the magnet schools. So we see that she, she is a simple woman, but she's also a sinful woman. She's simple, 
and she's sinful. Now, why would I, why would I say that? What does this mean? It means that she was a simple woman with a family and that she had a sinful nature. Now, this is what's where we must tread very carefully, and there's a reason why I give this. I give this to you because, again, those who come from backgrounds of uh, Catholic, Roman Catholicism or Orthodox um, come from a, a, a theology that has been articulated that Mary was sinless. But that's not what the Scripture says. Matter of fact, I've given you a slew of um, verses. Can we go forward for this? I mean, Jesus, even they said that of Jesus, that's how bad Nazareth was. It didn't have a good reputation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, matter of fact, in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus had um, given his, uh, after he had been into the ministry, they had run him out of town. They rejected him. I mean, Nazareth was not a spiritually receptive place. It was a simple place, but it was not very spiritually receptive. And we can see that she had grown up in this place, and she was a simple woman, but she was also a sinful woman. Can we go to that slide? Sinful woman, point little B there. Coming up soon, I hope. Simple and sinful. And I give you a series of verses for that, and the reason that I, I show that to you is because the Scripture takes pain, not necessarily to show her sin, but to show that Jesus was the only person who has ever lived was sinless. The only one, ever. So we see that Mary was a normal person. She was blessed, but she was a person. That she wasn't sinless forever. That she had a sinful nature, and she herself had to be saved in the same way that we are, through faith in her Son, our Lord Jesus. We can be sure that Mary had sin, and that she needed to have salvation through her Son, just like all of us. We know that she was married, I mean, she eventually married Joseph, and she had a family. Now, this is where um, those come from different Christian backgrounds, such as orthodoxy or Catholicism, do what I call hermeneutical flip-flops. They take words such as the word for brothers, that Jesus had brothers. Mark chapter 6 has Jesus teaching and his family shows up, says his brothers show up. And they, and they even say, wait a minute, who is this guy? Don't we have his brothers and family here? Don't we know who he is? And those who come from different backgrounds say, no, the word brothers, which is the, the most often the word is used is to our show brother or uh, sibling, but it can be used occasionally to mean cousin. So those who come from Catholic backgrounds say, no, 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 Jesus was a perpetual virgin forever, and she had, th those were Jesus' cousins, not brothers. Well, context determines meaning, and the most clear meaning there is that they are his brothers, she was a normal person. She was an amazing woman. She's the most blessed woman, but she was, she, she was a great spiritually, a spiritual woman, or a um, simple and then sinful, but she was also a very spiritual woman. I mean, we can't exalt her too high, but we can't, we can't look on her too low, but we can see that she was a spiritually astute and mature woman, especially for her age. That's why we see in verse 30, after the angel appears to her and tells her that she will be the mother of the Messiah, notice what she says in verse 30, or actually what he says in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. How could she have found favor if she wasn't living a life pleasing to God? How could she find that favor? We can see then that she was devoted. 
to the Lord. She lived a life devoted to Him. She was a simple woman. She had a sinful nature. But yet she was also a very spiritual woman. Now, she was scared after hearing the angel's announcement. And we can see that she was willing to be used by God. That's one of the greatest things that we can take away from her life. She was willing to be used of God. Willing to be used. Many of us are willing verbally. But we're not willing practically. We want our faith and our comfort at the same time. We want our treasure on earth and our treasure in heaven. We want both worlds. But no, no, we can't. We can't have both worlds. If we're willing to follow God, we have to leave this world behind and suffer everything that comes with it. We have to be willing, like Jeremiah was willing in Isaiah chapter 6, after going to the throne room of Almighty God and seeing the angels all around. He, and, and God says, who, will, who will, shall we send? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Not knowing the price that he would have to pay. Or Jeremiah, here is one that I, I read and I can't believe the pain that he went through. Everywhere he went, people were spitting at him, yelling at him. There was hostility. There was danger of death. There was persecution. Everywhere, every person that he talked to, that's why he's called the weeping prophet. He was continually hurting. But he says, if I, if I stop and make up my mind to be silent, that I won't offend anybody anymore. But I feel the word of God burning in me like a fire, that I have to let it out. I cannot keep it in. See, Mary was willing to do whatever God called her to do. What is God calling you to do? Does it mean suffering persecution for you? Does it mean suffering misunderstanding? Does it mean suffering job loss? Does it mean suffering a pay decrease? Does it mean suffering the misunderstanding of family and hostility? The, the, the man that, we, uh, that put together the mission that we went and visited a few weeks ago in India named Saji Lukos, and he has his biography, and I read his biography uh, while we were on the way there, and after he came to faith, his father beat him continuously for coming to know Jesus. I mean, we don't know what that's like. We have no clue. For us, it's acceptable. I mean, just to, to be a Christian in our social world, it's okay. It's just a box that we marked, but I guarantee you, the time is coming, and it's happening already, where to say you're a Christian in name only is going to bring derision. I mean, just to say you're a Christian, what I mean is people are going to look at you differently, and people won't be saying they're a Christian because it's socially acceptable any longer. Just like the, the term Christian originally was given as a term of derision. It's going to get to that point, and it's already there. People don't care if you're Christian as long as you're willing to believe what they believe and not speak out against them. See, the reason that Jesus is so controversial is because he comes into a person's life and he demands change. He demands submission to him and leaving one's life behind to follow him, to give up everything to follow him. That's why he's so controversial. To say that you can hold on to Jesus and everything else is not in the word of God. 
Every single one of us has to lay aside everything that we have in order to have him. Because that's who he is. He's not a part of your life. He's the defining, the very definition, the giver of your life. So we see that that Mary was willing to be used by God. Look at verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's faith. That's faith. I don't know if she knew all of the things that were going to happen because of this, but she was willing to be used by God. She believed the word of the Lord and was willing to be used by God in this divine assignment. I'm not sure if, she, if the circumstances were the same for us, we would say the same thing. We're only willing to do what's convenient or comfortable. When it comes time to do it, sacrifice or be uncomfortable or to suffer, we stop. Not Mary. She was willing. And this willingness came as a result of her humility. This willingness came as a result of her humility. She was a humble girl. She didn't believe that God uh, could use her in that way because she was a virgin, but she was willing to say, I don't understand, but if you say so, I believe it. She didn't look highly upon herself. She understood that God was God and she was not. Now, I know I just spoke a little bit ago about Paderewski, and there's another story about his life. Um, There was an American student who had gone to the Beethoven Museum in Bonn, and while she was there, she saw Beethoven's piano, and the man who was her guide um, was, was there with her, and she was dialoguing with him, and she asked if she could play his piano. And he said no, and then she gave him a nice, generous tip, and then he said yes. And she sat down and she began to play the beginning of the Moonlight Sonata. When she got up, she remarked to the guide, she said, I'm sure all the famous pianists in the world want to play this piano. And he remarked, he said, Paderewski was here a few weeks ago. And when asked if he would like the opportunity, he said he wasn't even worthy to touch it. See, he knew his station and where, how good he really wasn't. Though others might have esteemed him so highly, he had a much more realistic view of himself in in comparison with Beethoven. See, Mary had that view of herself. She was a humble person. And I think she would be appalled to see how far people have elevated her this day and age. She was willing to be used of God as a result of her humility and through recognizing her authority recognizing her authority. What I mean by that is not the authority that she, pl- she had within herself, but recognizing the authority of God above her. She recognized God's authority that he had the ability to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. He is not beholden to our rules and how we do things. It's like after Katrina. After Katrina happened, one man remarked, if God is behind this, he has some explaining to do. God doesn't have to explain himself to you or anybody else. God is God. You're not. We're not. God is almighty God. Or those people that say, God, if you are real, then you can stop me from dropping this right now. As if God is your performing monkey. God looks at you and he goes, who are you to order me? No. God is 
God and we are not. And she recognized. That's why she says, I am the servant. I am a servant of the Lord. I've come to to serve him. Whatever he wants me to do, I will do. Let it be to me according to your word. She recognized that she wasn't in charge and that she was part of God's bigger plan. That's an amazing faith to surrender oneself to something greater, to relinquish control to God and his will for your life. That takes great faith. Now, how are we doing in this department? What is God calling you to? Do you recognize the authority of God over your life? Now, many of us have a tendency to stop and say, no, God, I'm afraid to relinquish control because you hurt me. And I've been there, and I don't like that, and I'm going to keep you at arm's distance, and I'm going to say I follow you, but I'm not going to really follow you with my life because you hurt me. You're going to put me through pain. You're going to make me wait. You're going to make me have to exercise and learn patience. You're going to have me go through hardship, and I don't want that. See, that's why the prosperity gospel preachers are so appealing to people because there is no patience. There is no necessary suffering. It's what you want now, and God is to respond to you as if he's the, the, uh, uh, the genie in a lamp. You rub the word of God, and then he comes out and he gives you three wishes. A Cadillac, big house, and no problems with your health. That's not how God is. He's not this biblical genie. God is calling us to himself through his love. He's calling us to submit to him in service and surrender. Now, he is God and we are not, but he, he lovingly calls us. And then he also, though, demands. You know, it's interesting. There's the, the story of Arabian horses. They go through this rigorous training in the deserts of the Middle East. The trainers require absolute obedience from the horses and then test them to see if they are, they are completely trained. See, the final test is almost beyond the endurance of any living thing. It's quite phenomenal, really. The trainers force the horses to do without water for many days. Then he turns them loose, and of course they start running toward the water. But just as they get to the edge, ready to plunge in and drink, the trainer blows his whistle. The horses who have been completely trained and have learned perfect obedience to stop. They turn around and come pacing back to the trainer. They stand there quivering, wanting water, but they wait in perfect obedience. When the trainer is sure that he has their obedience, he gives them a signal to go back and drink. See, that's what God's doing with us. He wants perfect obedience. And at times, we think, God, I need that water. I need it now. And he says, nope, wait. Wait. I'm, I'm seeing to see if I have your heart. I'm seeing if you are trained and you're willing to trust. And many of us, what we do is we say, no, God, you don't know how bad it is right now. I need a drink. And then we buck him. And then we find out that he keeps taking us back to that same lesson over and over in life because we refuse to listen to it the first time. Because we are hard-headed. And God has to continually bring that to us again and again and again and bring those trials to us in order to get our attention to show that he has something better for us. But see, Mary was willing to listen the first time. That's, she had this willing heart. I mean, she, she was completely humble, but she recognized the authority of God over her life. See, I'm amazed at God. The older that I get, the more that I read, the more amazed that I am. How could God do what he did by, by humbling himself is beyond me. 
just uh, this past week, I mean, uh, actually these past two weeks, for our family has been pretty hard, as I think many of you, you know. Uh, we found out we were pregnant, and then uh, we miscarried. And uh, those first few days were pretty bad. Uh, I'm not a pie-in-the-sky guy. I'm one that says, why? Why, God? Why does this happen? Why does this why do we go through these things? And I didn't want to talk to God. I didn't want to read the Word of God, and I didn't want to be around God's people. And one morning, I forced myself to get up and read the Word. And of course, God is sovereign, and I'm not. And in my devotional reading that day, it came to Psalm 23. And I, I didn't like that. The Lord is my shepherd. And I was reading from this other version called the Holman Christian Standard, and it says, I shall not lack he leads me beside the still waters. He lets me. That's how they put it in the HTSB. He lets me lie down in green pastures. And then I read about, yea, though I go through the darkest valley, not the shadow of death in that translation, said I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. And I stopped and I looked at that and I realized that even in the midst of suffering, God's hand was there correcting us. Because, you know, it's in the midst of difficulty when we're most tempted to disobey. It's when things aren't going well that we have a tendency to want to turn from God. But it's his rod and his staff that shows his loving hand that brings us back to himself. And then at the very end of that, it said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. And the way that they have it in the HCSB is it will pursue me all the days of my life. And what struck me was God's goodness was pursuing me. And I have a tendency when I'm going through hardship, and I don't know about you, but to think, why, God, why? Why is this painful happening to me right now? Why is it when I submit to you, I feel like I'm, you're going to hurt me? And I want to I be like the Heisman and put a straight arm to you, like you're some tackler keeping me from getting to the goal line. And it's like, I want to keep you at a distance. And it's sometimes, it, it's like a Wrong Way Regals. You ever heard of that guy? Wrong Way Regals? He's back in, in generations ago. The guy was playing football, and he got the ball, and he started running for the end zone, and he gets all the way there, and he's shedding tackles left and right, and he finally gets a touchdown, and he, he didn't realize that he was running the wrong way. I mean, many of us, that's what we are. And God's trying to tackle us, yes, to stop us from doing something stupid. But in this context, it, for us, it wasn't anything that we were doing was dumb. But it was God just showing us that, you know what? Goodness and mercy is going to pursue you, and you're not going to understand, but I'm there with you. And matter of fact, I am not unaware of your suffering. Matter of fact, I know your suffering. That I've taken your suffering upon myself. That I have been rejected. That I have experienced pain. That I'm not the God removed from it. I'm the God that's intimately connected with it. And then it didn't make a lot of sense, but I submitted in that moment in time. And then suddenly I had peace. I wasn't angry. I realized that God was there, he was God, and I was not. And it was tough. It was tough. But I recognize that there's going to be a lot in life that I don't understand, but God does. And I trust in him. I trust in him. That God is intimately acquainted with our suffering. And that's the, the message of Christmas, is that God came near. God came near. I think of this quote by C.S. Lewis I want to share with you. In talking, he was talking about the incarnation and the resurrection. And he writes, What we ordinarily call the resurrection, being just, so to speak, the point at which it turns. Think what with, with that descent is. He's talking about the incarnation. 
the coming down not only into humanity, but into those nine months which precede human birth. I mean, what was Mary's ultrasound like? which precede human birth, in which they tell us we recapitulate strange pre-human, subhuman forms of life. He's writing, uh, he died in 1963, so there's all the theories that he's writing against. And going lower still into being a corpse, a thing which, if this ascending movement had not begun, would pre presently have passed into the organic altogether and have gone back into the inorganic as all corpses do. But that's not the point. With this next point is where he really develops it. He says, one has a picture of someone going right down and dredging the sea bottom. One has a picture of a strong man trying to lift a very big, complicated burden. He stoops down and gets himself right under it so that he himself disappears. And then he straightens his back and moves off with the whole thing swaying on his shoulders. Or else one has the picture of a diver stripping off garment after garment, making himself naked and flashing for a moment in the air and then down through the green and warm and sunlit water into the pitch black, cold, freezing water, down into the mud and slime, then up again, his lungs almost bursting, back again to the green and warm and sunlit water. And then at last, out into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. This thing is human nature, but associated with it, all nature, the new universe. In essence, what he's saying there is the incarnation is like, is Christ being the, the real atlas. You know, the picture of atlas holding the earth on his back. He said the incarnation is Christ stooping down to be able to lift humanity on his back. And it's the incarnation is him bending down to pick it up, and it's the resurrection to show that he has it. But he couldn't pick it up unless he first stooped down. And his stooping down was him humbling himself by entering into creation, by assuming the flesh of man. See, that's why so many people believe that Mary was continually sinless, that if she had one, that if Jesus had one divine parent and then one earthly parent, they think that logically there would still be sin to transmit to the next generation. So that's why they even back a step away and they say Mary herself was sinless in order to procure her to be sinless and then Jesus could be completely sinless, which is how they look at it logically, but that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says no such thing. There's a mystery that is happening there, that God in the flesh is stooping down and identifying with man, and then as God holding the Father God's hand and uniting the two together. The Son of God became a man that men might become sons of God. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. Now, Mary, though, was also gripped by the wonder of Christmas. I mean, we look at Mary and all that she has done, but she was gripped by the wonder of Christmas. She couldn't believe that God would do this, but he did. I think of Max Lucado's book, God Came Near. It's a great book. He has 25, he has this chapter called 25 Questions for Mary. These are just some of them. He says, what was it like watching him pray? I mean, can you think of that? What was it like watching him pray? How did he respond when he saw other kids giggling during the service at the synagogue? When he saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? <laughs> did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? No, Mom, it wasn't like that. <laughs> when he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face as if he were listening to someone you couldn't hear? 
How did he act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever try to count the stars with him and succeed? Did he ever come home with a black eye? I don't like you, Jesus. (laughs) How did he act when he got his first haircut? Did he have any friends by the name of Judas? Did he do well in school? Did you ever scold him? Did you ever, did he ever have to ask a question about scripture? What do you think he thought when he saw a prostitute offering to the highest bidder the body he had made? Did he ever get angry when someone was dishonest with him? Did you ever catch him pensively looking at his flesh while holding a clod of dirt? Did he ever wake up afraid? Who was his best friend? When someone referred to Satan, how did he act? Did you ever accidentally call him father? What did he and his cousin John talk about as kids? Did his brothers and sisters understand what was happening? And lastly, did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? I mean, we forget. I mean, what did she know? You know, it's interesting when we think or try to get a picture of what was going on in Mary's mind. We get a picture after the the angel announced to her that she would uh, be the birth mother of Jesus in what is known as the Magnificat, which is Latin and comes from the very first line she utters, my soul magnifies the Lord. See, we can see her wonder was shown in her praising, her praising. She responds in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I mean, this is how spiritual she is. How many 12 or 13-year-old girls are going to be saying this theology? It's hardcore theology right there. And his mercy is for those who fear him. I'm sure there are, but I just haven't heard it recently. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his own. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. In the rich, he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That's amazing. That's amazing that she had that grasp of things. See, we too must stand amazed at the incarnation all over again. Our God is not the God who is afar off, but the God who came near. And we should pause, reflect, and praise what he has done in order to bring about our redemption. Now, notice what Mary also did after the shepherds came to her, telling her about what they had seen in Luke chapter 2, verse 19. They said all these things that they had seen, and what did Mary do? She treasured or she pondered these things in her heart. She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. See, Mary was pondering the wonder of Christmas. When was the last time that you stopped to think about the meaning of Christmas? Have you forgotten what it means? It's not just about that baby in the manger. It's about the God who came near, the son who came to save, and the sinners who must surrender. In 1965, CBS aired the Christmas special, Charlie Brown Christmas, the classic based upon the comic strip by Peanuts by Charles Schultz. And the the show show depicts 
Christmas from the perspective of the main character, Charlie Brown. And, and the show starts off with Charlie talking with his close friend, Linus. He says, I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming and I'm not happy. I don't feel the same, the, the way that I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always, felt, I always end up feeling depressed. And he's depressed at the commercialization of Christmas clearly demonstrated by his friends. And he, in his depression, he visits Lucy in the psychiatric booth. She asks him to be the director of the school play on the nativity. After that, she sympathizes with him in his holiday depression, saying that she understands about not getting what she wants for Christmas. After all, she only gets, in her words, stupid toys, clothes, or stuff like that. When asked by Charlie what she wants, she responds, real estate. Even Charlie's dog Snoopy is in it. He's getting on in the action as he decorates his doghouse with Christmas lights in order to win a contest. And even Charlie's little sister Sally asks him to help her compose a letter to Santa where she thinks, uh, where she asks that he just send money. See, Charlie makes his way to the rehearsal of the nativity scene, only to be devastated yet again as he vainly tries to get attention of his classmates. Undeterred, he decides not to let the play fall to the commercialism of the day. He decides to get a traditional Christmas tree in order to set the mood for the Christmas play. Accompanied by his companion, Linus, they make their way to a Christmas tree lot where there are only aluminum Christmas trees except for one little wooden tree. You remember the tree, a very small tree with hardly any needles. The cast responds by putting him down for his stupidity and selecting such a small and dumb little tree. Exasperated, Charlie cries out, Is there, Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And his friend Linus responds, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. He makes his way to center stage, spotlight goes on him, and he does something utterly remarkable. He recites Luke chapter 2 from memory. And once he's finished, he makes his way back to Charlie Brown and says, this is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. See, a Charlie Brown Christmas is a very well-known special seen by millions and it's, it's amazing that when the show first aired, the thought among the studio executives was that the show would fail because of its overt religious tone. Matter of fact, the studio executives were, were afraid that who's going to listen to the King James Version being quoted from Luke chapter 2? But that's exactly what he did. And Schultz was adamant about keeping it in the scene in, remarking, and he says this, if we don't tell the true meaning of Christmas, who will? See, if we don't tell the true meaning of Christmas, who will? See, Mary understood the wonder of Christmas. She was a woman. She was simple, sinful, but spiritual. And she pondered up these things in her heart, and she allowed it to help her praise the Lord. She continued mauled and wanted to understand the greater depth of what it truly meant. And so should we. We should look at her life and be amazed, not to the point where we exalt her to that overarching status of Savior, but to the point where we stop and we see someone who was so deep in faith that she was willing to surrender herself to do God's will. I'm amazed at her. I really am. That as we recite her words and we remember, we remember Christmas all over again, that God came near to provide us with redemption, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he would go so far to step out of eternity, to step into temporality. 
while taking off his glory and taking the form of a servant so that men so that men might become sons of God. It's a pretty amazing picture. As we close our service today, we're going to sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I was looking at the last verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, a verse that we don't sing very often. And the verse goes, Come, desire of nations, come. Jesus is the true answer to all of the nation's problems. Jesus is the, the heartfelt desire for every single person without exception. What's going on in Syria right now, the Syrian civil war conflict, what's going on in, in Egypt, what's continually going on between Palestinians and Israelis, what's going on in the different African nations, Jesus is the answer. He is the true desire of the nations. Fix in us the humble home. See, God came to hu in humility to humble himself to take the form of a servant, and then he finds his home in us through the Spirit of God that comes into us. See, Christ died, rose again, and then ascended into heaven. And from there sends the Spirit of God to dwell within us, to teach us and bring to remembrance the words of God. Fix in us thy humble home, living in us. Do you know no, there's no longer a Jewish temple standing? You know why? Because Jesus was that temple. And then when Jesus left, he sent his Spirit to us, and God dwelling in us, we become then temples of the Holy Spirit. As the book of Corinthians so clearly states. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. This was the seed foretold in Genesis chapter 3 that would help bring about redemption and defeat the serpent who would help bring about the, the disaster of the fall. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Help us to find victory over Satan. Adam's likeness now efface. What that means there is we were born in the likeness of Adam, the first man, but then we are born again to be in the likeness of the second Adam, the true son of man. Stamp thine image in its place. Restore the image that was marred through the fall. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king.